Now my text is that fourth um, reading from Luke chapter 2, the account of Luke of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and how that came about. First of all, let me thank uh, the musicians, uh, our wonderful choir, extraordinary choir, and uh, musicians, uh, brass musicians and pianist and Thomas Russell and Dr. Cole. Uh, lots and lots and lots of hours of rehearsal uh, in the fall in November and December to uh, sing uh, in these four Advent Sundays that we've had some of the most fabulous music uh, that you can ever hear. And it's so easy to take it for granted, but on behalf of the congregation, uh, and especially on behalf of myself, thank you for all that you do to make worship such a pleasurable thing, a joyous thing. Thank you. And uh, you'll notice that in the bulletin it says homily, and in Presbyterian world that's code for short. <laughs> so I have four things to reflect on um, as we think of the story of Luke and the birth of Jesus. Now, Luke, first of all, was a historian, and what I want to say, first of all, is that this account of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is historically accurate, reliable, and dependable. Luke, in the opening verses of his gospel, he dedicates it to a man called Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is giving reassurance to Theophilus, whoever he might have been, that he can implicitly trust what it is that Luke is writing, because he's done his research. He's interviewed people, and the key word is eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Luke has talked to people who were there when these things happened, and you can trust it. We live in an age, postmodern age, when there are no standards, no objective norms, there are no true truths, and that applies even to history. So history is debunked and history is rewritten and you, you cannot trust history from 100 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. And Luke is saying, you can trust what it is I wrote because I, I did my homework. I checked. I double-checked. I checked with eyewitnesses. That's very important as you sit down and read the Gospels, that you can trust them, 
that God, by the Holy Spirit, has kept them pure down through the ages, and that you have something that is substantial and objective and trustworthy. I'm about to read a book. I'm going on a vacation to the beach. You can be envious. I am retiring in about 40 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, <laughs> 25 at most. And uh, I'm heading to the beach and I'm taking a book with me written by Mary Beard on the Roman Empire. It's a volume two of, of her life's work. She's an Oxford University professor of ancient history, Greek history and Roman history. And she's a TV star, and she writes books that are full of facts about the past. And when you read this book, you don't say, well, she's making this up. You know, she wants to tell a good story, so she's making all that. You can't trust this. These are just stories. No, it's not. She's a historian. She's a scientific historian. And she has spent her entire life checking and double-checking and triple-checking and quadruple-checking I don't know what the word for five is. Quint, quint something? Checking? And uh, when I'm going to read this book this week, I'm not going to be saying, you know, I, I don't think she's accurate here. Because she's done her homework. And she's writing about events almost simultaneous with the Gospels. What is written here concerning the birth of Jesus is historical and trustworthy, and that's important. And it's important for you college students who are coming back and your college professors are telling you otherwise, that you can read your Bible, you can open your Bible anywhere, and you can trust it. Secondly, Luke makes a big deal that Jesus was the son of David that he was the son of David. He, he's born in David's city in Bethlehem. Now, there's a man here by the name of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, and before it became a republic. And he was the man who defeated Antony and Cleopatra at the battle of um, Actium in 31 BC. He ruled the world. That all the world should be registered for the purposes of taxation. This is about death and taxes. He thought he had the whole world in his hands. There was nothing of any consequence beyond the Roman Empire's borders. 700 years before Augustus was even born, there was a prophet by the name of Micah who prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before. When Augustus issues this decree for registration to send everyone back to their own city, under the logistics and administration of the Roman Empire. Little did Augustus realize that he was a pawn in the hands of God. 
that he meant one thing, but God meant another. He meant taxation, but God meant the birth of a Savior, whose name was Jesus. God is in the big things, and he's in the little things. It's the doctrine of providence. And I've said many times from this pulpit and elsewhere on Wednesdays in Jackson Hall that when you believe in the doctrine of providence, you can go to sleep at night. That God orders all things together for the good of those that love him, that he's in charge, that he's sovereign. Well, the third thing is that Jesus' birth was ordinary. Well, that may shock you. Don't I believe in the, in, the, in the miraculous virgin birth? Yes, but the birth was ordinary. It was the conception that was a miracle. The birth was like any other birth. God had to go right back to the beginning and undo what Adam did and send into the world his son to be born of a woman, to be made subject to the law. Though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself and was found in the form of a servant for you and me to save us and rescue us and deliver us. That through faith in the finished work of this infant child lying in a manger in Bethlehem, we may entertain the assurance of heaven and glory and eternal life. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God's redemptive activity on behalf of His people. The fourth thing is that this was an act of humility. It was in a manger, in a stall, in a cave. Many people think that Jesus was actually born in a cave, that part of the cave was a dwelling place and part of the cave was for animals, for cows and sheep and horses perhaps, donkey, goats, something. And Luke puts it like this, there was no place for them in the inn. So many people. At four o'clock, this place was absolutely slammed. I mean, as full as I've ever seen it in 12 years. And who knows how many were over in the overflow. They were heading there at 3.30 because there was no room for them in the inn. <laughs> because it was full. Because of this registration business, tens of thousands of people had come flooding into Jerusalem. But God knew that. And it was purposeful that he was found born in a place that we can describe as a cave because there was no room for him in the inn because it was a demonstration of his humility. It's interesting that Luke ends his gospel with a tale about Jesus' corpse after he has been crucified, that his corpse was put in a, 
in a cave. A hole in a rock, a cave. I think Luke is bookending his gospel by saying he was born in a poor man's cave, but he was buried in a rich man's cave because he was heading back to glory. He came to earth from heaven. This is once in Royal David City. He came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord of all and his shelter was a stable and his cradle was a stall with the poor and mean and lowly lived on earth our Savior holy. Though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. I was telling the children this morning at um, the 8.30 service, and that children's address at the 8.30 service has been my all-time favorite thing to do here. And uh, I was tickled pink when Jason Luther's son, in a card last week, a week before, said, I've been his preacher all of his life. He's eight. I was telling the children this morning that if you have Jesus, you have everything. No matter what the difficulties, no matter what the trials, no matter what the future holds, if you have Jesus, you have everything. It's the greatest gift imaginable. And I trust that you have it. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for he who was laid in a manger for us. The one who came into this world to save sinners like us. To live and die for us. To rise for us. And so this Christmas season, help us to be filled with gratitude for the provision of Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And to know that when we have him, we have everything. Hear us, O Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.